This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A master treatment plan for Kualoa Ranch has just been finalized. Casper Vanderwood, research manager of the Hawaii Ant Lab on the Big Island, flew to Honolulu yesterday for a site visit and met with ranch and state agriculture officials. As we first reported, the treatment will cover 20 acres of the ranch. We talked this morning to both Vanderwood and Taylor Kellerman, director of agriculture and stewardship for Kualoa Ranch, about what's involved. We start off with Kaz. In this situation, we have the luxury of time. This is going to be a five-year project, and we wanted to make sure that we went through all the possible options open to us to choose the one that's best for the job, but also best for the ranch. And what are those options? We were looking at whether we should be treating aerially or from the ground, and we had a range of pesticides that we were looking at using. Being on a working farm, we have to be very careful that we're following all the regulations when it comes to pesticide use. And... Some of the baits that we could have used um, may interfere with the future use of that piece of land. So we wanted to be sure that we went through all the possible options. Right, because Kulo Ranch, I mean, that's an active ranch. You've got just a multitude of uses between the visitors there, the movie productions that go on, and you know, you've got the, the, the livestock, and, and that was actually... When I heard about this infestation, I was concerned, you know, for the horses and cattle. Uh, so, uh, Taylor, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, certainly. So the the infestation that was identified, while you, you never really want to have something like this on your property, the location of it geographically, as well as in relation to our operations, both agriculturally and guest-wise, is in a, um, a good place in the sense that it is isolated in one of the valleys that we have the ability to um, eliminate any sort of contact from guests or from animals or anything that might obviously suffer from that type of thing. So it's actually been great in the sense that we're able to isolate it and come up with a plan uh, with the Hawaii Ant Lab that's going to be efficient that we're hoping for that 100% eradication. Okay, so when will this kick off? What happens? Yeah, uh, our first treatment is planned for September the 16th. That gives us about four weeks to prepare and plan. We have a lot of things to buy and coordinate, and uh, normally the first time around on on these sort of jobs, we have to treat quite a few times. We're finding our feet, so we'd like to kind of over-plan to make sure that we're able to complete the task at hand, especially the first time around. Now, I know when we first talked with John Morgan, he had mentioned that I think they had some of the pesticide on order. I don't know if it had arrived or if you'd done any initial treatments. So essentially, we spoke with the representatives from Hawaii Ant Lab, and they were able to identify certain products that they would use uh, in the treatment. And we analyzed what would be the best product to use initially, just for a first application to get the ball rolling in regards to control efforts. And we were able to make that application that's now going to be incorporated into the overall elimination objective. So how does this work? Do we need a lot of boots on the ground uh, in order to roll out this treatment plan, Kaz? Yes, it's good. We normally have a crew of around, you know, I'm thinking about six to eight people. Uh, sometimes having more people actually slows the job down, especially the first time around, because everybody's trying to figure out what to do and how to do it. So we'll probably keep the work team down to about six or eight people. And um, we're going to be doing a lot of learning the first time around, I would think. So talk about the area that you have to treat, because at the time when we talked to John last month, he was saying that it might just be on one or two acres. But what's the extent of the, of the buffer zone that you folks are going to have to cover? We finished the delimiting survey around that area over the past few weeks. And um, when we incorporate a 55-yard buffer on that area, we have a total of about 20 acres. And about half of that would be infested that, that we could see. And the outside half is most likely also infested. It's just that we can't find them. So the first job is really to try to get yourself around the actual site, work out where the boundaries of the infestation are so that we're not treating too much land and also that we're not treating insufficient amounts and leaving some colonies on the outside. How does this area of the coverage, the 20 acres, compare to the colony that was found in Maui, in Hana. I thought at one time they found one there. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, on Maui, the infestation near Nahiku is much larger. It's more like 100 acres. And there, the, a lot of the country is inaccessible. It's not possible to put boots on the ground. So the Maui invasive species 
committee are working on developing an aerial application regime there, and I believe that's going to be kicking off in a few weeks as well. Wow. Okay, so that would be the first time then that we're treating it aerially? Certainly in, in Hawaii, yes, yes. Now, the Kualoa infestation, it's easier country to be walking through, but it's still pretty rough. And that's why we were thinking about aerial application, because some of the areas that were harder to traverse may have been easier to treat from the air, but the decision was to go with a ground-based Okay, and the, and the Maui situation, stage. the Maui situation then, they may be doing aerial in the next month or so. Do you need special permits for that? Uh, it's, it's my understanding it would be best to talk to the Maui Invasive Species Committee to get it from the horse's mouth. But, okay. yeah, there were some regulatory hurdles that we had to work through, uh, as well as developing an, an entire new method of application, I guess. So that one's been fairly complicated. We were concerned with, with Kualoa that uh, those delays might not have been something that we would like. So we went for the, the option of treating from the ground, which we can do straight away. Taylor, talk about how you folks are having to deal with this challenge because you are a, a working farm or ranch. You know, it's uh, kind of like I mentioned earlier, because of the location of where the ants are present and because it is such a far distance from the centralized location where we deal with most of our guest services. And it's also quite a distance away from um, areas where we have a lot of our agricultural operations. When it comes to the cattle portion of it, because we do have the ability to rotate cattle and the ability to have other pastures, we're able to uh, pretty much keep um, everything in check in the sense of we have complete control to keep everything out that we need to keep out for, for that purpose. So it's something that I think right now uh, we're just looking at, looking forward to getting everything started with, with Cass and his crew and um you know, like like we said, is just expecting this this hundred percent control, so we can we can put it behind us. But it is obviously a long project, and I think uh, having a lot of um, coordination with all the parties involved is kind of what we're looking at. And what about the cost that's involved? One thing that's been really helpful is that we do have our own land stewardship program, so we do have full time employees that work here just in conservation management, and that's actually who had first discovered the infestation. And so uh, when we met yesterday with Cass and his team, we were able to actually combine forces, if you will. So labor-wise, you know, it's it's something that we're, we're, we're both contributing to. And then uh, also, as Cass mentioned, product-wise, uh, it's, it's, it's something that we're going to kind of be splitting costs on um, with the Hawaii Ant Lab and their funding. And so it's, it's definitely not a negligible amount, but it's definitely something that is uh, well within reason. There are several things in your favor that hopefully will lead to the success of beating this pest back. Correct. And so, uh, gosh, five years. So how does that work? Uh, Kaz, if you want to explain the process of how we tackle this. Little fire ants are um, um, quite resistant to people trying to get rid of them. In order to, to do so, we actually have to not just treat the one time, but to be treating every four to six weeks for for at least a year in order to just break the, the ants' dominance on that site. Uh, so we're looking at 12 months of fairly intensive work, followed by at least three years of what we call post-treatment monitoring. It's really easy to leave just one little colony behind that manages to survive everything we, we throw at it. And uh, it's really important for us that we find those if they exist and deal with them, because if we don't, then... All of the previous work will have been wasted. The site will still have little fire ants. Well, what's our best guesstimate as to the population out there per acre? Well, uh, as, as far as we know, look, looking at uh, work that other colleagues have done, the, the estimate of a, of a, I guess, a fully-fledged fire ant infestation is that there are about 220 million ants per hectare, uh, and that works out to about 80 million ants per acre I can reduce that down to a to a square foot, and there's still a lot of ants per square foot. It, it's these are these are difficult things to to get rid of. Well, that gives you the heebie-jeebies <laughs> to think about it. <laughs> well, we're, we we're really lucky in in a, in a perverse way. This couldn't have happened at, at a better place because the people on the ground are pretty highly trained. You know, the stewardship and the grazing side of the business. Uh, 
they're all they're all highly trained people, so they're able to recognise this problem when uh, in in other places it may have gone unnoticed for a lot longer. Again, lots of then pluses uh, toward a successful eradication. Uh, we have seen them do it in Mililani here on Oahu. I know they're tackling a couple of places, I think, in uh, Windward, Oahu. I think Lanikai and Huimanu, I think, were, there were some neighborhoods there. Yes. Uh, I, I guess with, with the level of fire ants on the Big Island, you would expect to see fire ants on Oahu pretty quickly. But luckily, we have uh, the Hawaii Department of Agriculture plant quarantine uh, branch, which pretty much is, manages to stop 99.999% of fire ants getting onto Oahu. And our job is to kind of mop up the ones that do escape that, that dragnet, if you like. Uh, and so we, we would expect to see these smaller infestations fairly frequently. And we're operating at, at the moment on a, what I call a search-and-destroy uh, tactic. We, we find them uh, as quickly, as early as we can, and then we deal with them fairly aggressively. And uh, the, our goal is to keep them off Oahu, uh, if that's at all possible. Okay, and, and anything else you want to underscore, Taylor, just from the ranch's point of view? And I don't know if you're going to have to do uh, much juggling of, of, of activities uh, on the ranch there. Yeah, you know, we're, we're actually not at all. So that's, that's kind of like Cass said, it's, there, it, there is kind of like this perverse positive to the, uh, to the situation where, where we do have a lot of situations that are applicable that are, are, are making it as such that we're, we're able to continue our normal operations, both agriculturally and guest speaking. So I, I think really, if I were to kind of pass something along that, you know, really is more lesson learned in the sense that uh, there is a lot of good information out there in regards to how the public can identify um, little fire ants if they believe they have it and what to do. And, you know, between OISC, Oahu uh, Invasive Species, and the Hawaii Ant Lab and all of these um, resources set forth, there, there, just, there is a good network of folks that, that can help, you know, slow and hopefully stop, you know, the spread of this, this pest throughout the rest of the state. And so I, I just kind of, that's how I've been con- communicating it with my family members as well as coworkers is really just, you know, it's, it's a good example of why due diligence and, and just knowing what to look for and educating, it a little bit, uh, edu- educating yourself a little bit can really help the overall public good, I guess would be the, the main communication. Okay. All right. And then it's just a matter, a matter of, uh, keeping on top of it and uh, continuing the monitoring. Exactly, exactly. So I think that's why having people like Cass who have the experience with it uh, is very helpful because, um, like, uh, you know, that five-year plan is is really meant to just make sure that there is um, that monitoring so that, you know, that one colony doesn't go left unchecked so that we make sure that we are successful in that 100% goal. Okay, and then how large is Kualoa, the acreage of the entire ranch? Kualoa is just a little bit over 3,800 acres. 3,800, okay. And then this is on uh, CAS again. So you said the the treatment border, well, about 20 acres, and then um, the infestation is how much, do you think? Probably closer to 12, 10 or 12. Okay. Uh, but we... We don't we know have, for sure. It, it's, it's very difficult to find little fire ants where they aren't uh, everywhere, our ability to find very small populations is not that good. Right. So that's why we add the, the extra buffer because we know there are ants there that we haven't found. And, okay. And it's more uh, challenging too if they're in trees, so we'll have to deal with that. And and hopefully they're they're not up in that area. But yes, well there there are significant parts of that 20 acres do have uh, do have native forests, so mm. we do have our work cut out for us. Um, but luckily it's. Uh, it's not such a large area. If, if you think about comparing it with the, the big infestation at Nahiku, um, that's more like 150 acres. Wow. Okay. Uh, so we'll circle the back. Between the, those two sites is that on one site we have, you know, trained ecologists that can spot these things, and on the other site we didn't. That was Kaz Vanderwood, research manager of the Hawaii Ant Lab, and Taylor Kellerman, Kualoa Ranch's director of agriculture and stewardship. Uh, they are working with the state agriculture department to try and beat back this latest infestation of little fire ant here on Oahu.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Aloha Friday quiz. Today's quiz is for hardcore state history buffs. Many may know that Statehood Day or Admissions Day is celebrated on the third Friday in August, commemorating the anniversary of the admission of Hawaii into the Union in 1959. But did you know that there were several other preliminary steps taken before the goal of statehood could be achieved? Statehood bills for Hawaii had been introduced in the U.S. Congress as early as 1919 by Prince Jonah Kalani Aniole. Additional bills were introduced in 1935, 1947, and 1950. We were wondering if you know what important bill relating to statehood was approved on March 18th, 1959. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. One ocean, one people, one canoe. HPR invites you to a screening of Moana Nui Akea, the documentary of Hokulea's landmark worldwide voyage, and a Q&A with Hokulea crew members. Sunday, August 18th in Waimea on Hawaii Island, Sunday, August 25th in Honolulu, and Saturday, August 31st in Lihue. Reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Dawson. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, Haleakala Waldorf School and Honolulu Waldorf School. Back in 2005, the government of Abu Dhabi initiated a plan to become a global leader in renewable energy and sustainability. The result of this plan was the planned community of Mazdar City, and its development was led by the Honolulu-based architectural firm WATG. Its CEO, Anthony Malos, recently returned to Hawaii and spoke with conversation producer Harrison Patino about the lessons of urban resilience and development learned from Mazdar City. There are three aspects to Mazdar. One was renewable energy, one was Mazdar capital, and the other was sustainable development. So Mazdar City was the home to all those initiatives, including building a a world-class research university. And the idea was not only would you have the social and the economic sustainable strategies, but you would build a city that was a model for how cities of the future should be built based on sustainable principles. So you brought a lot of experience as the CEO of WATG coming from Honolulu. What did you bring into that development? What were your ideas in terms of the overall sustainability of Mazdar City? The built environment, particularly cities, and the work we do as designers of buildings, generates about 75% of the world's CO2. So the built environment has a role to play on mitigating against climate change and reducing CO2. So in WATG, our architecture is now focused on resource use, efficiency around energy, water, and the embedded carbons that you use in making a building. But what we also bring to cities like Honolulu is a dialogue about the public realm and particularly mobility. Because the sustainable aspect of cities is not only efficient resource use and reducing the impacts that contribute to climate change, but also the wellness and the social well-being of citizens. The other aspect I think we bring, particularly to Honolulu, is around mobility. 25, 26% of the energy in cities is devoted to moving things. And so 
if I look at Honolulu and particularly what some of the mayor's initiatives are about reducing traffic CO2 emissions and making the city more walkable, you have a phenomenal public realm and particularly a waterfront. And the more that's integrated into walkable, pedestrian-friendly bike and transit, the long-term benefit to the city will be immeasurable. Were there any parallels towards what you were able to develop in Mazdar City towards what you think might be able to be achieved in Honolulu or in Hawaii at large? The one, uh, it's a good question. The one idea that does come to mind is the sense of walkable communities that are connected by transit. And the mayor's already onto this, in, as I understand, with transit-oriented development that will then modify the land use plan for development in the city and link those communities with transit, whether that transit is bikes, uh, buses, rail, or simply rideshare when transportation becomes more of a service than owning a transportation vehicle. What does that look like in Mazdar City now? It's a series of neighborhoods that are all walkable. And then when you move beyond the neighborhood, you then are connected by a driverless, solar-powered uh, minibus. So the idea is you've got walkable neighborhoods, fully amenitized, a good mix of work, live, play. And then when you want to get to farther reaches of the city, you don't have to jump in a car or what have you you can jump on transit to get to the next walkable neighborhood. Mazdar City is a planned community. Hawaii has existing communities with existing infrastructure. I would imagine it's different to implement these goals of sustainability and green energy to a community that has yet to be built versus applying those lessons retroactively to a place that already exists. How do you find the balance between that? Well, Mazdar started out because the government wanted to change the paradigm. And so they took the initiative, took the risk, and put the capital in. When I came into Mazda, that was already underway. But I was asked to transform it into a much more workable, uh, open model. So re-engineered the real estate proposition, which has many more similarities to development in Honolulu, because you've got parcels of land being de developed, regened, that are very similar to the way we were building neighborhoods in Mazda City, except on Honolulu, it's a much bigger scale. So I think the parallels are there's a balance between government's re responsibility to innovate around infrastructure, the public realm, and the, the regulatory approvals process, and private enterprise to come in and be given incentives to do things that are in the greater public interest, not only in the immediate private interest. How do you find the compromise between affordability and sustainability? I think in the early days of sustainable development and sustainable priorities, there was the perception, which in the early days was true, that sustainability added a premium to the development or whatever it was. This is no longer true because there's an awareness now, particularly through the uh, um, press, about climate change and its possible effects. And there's a greater ability to recognize the benefits of making investments that in fact will create resilience um, and mitigate the effects of climate change. But the other thing we learned at Mazda City, which I think is relevant for the development community, not only in Honolulu, but elsewhere, is that if you set the goals out at the beginning on what your sustainability targets should be, and you set in place a series of um, benefits or inducements, either a faster approval process or an integration between the public realm and the private development so the private development gets some benefit for giving to the public realm, then I think sustainable development should not cost any more. And we proved that at Mazda. We built the world in the Gulf, the first lead platinum commercial office building at no extra cost. Because when we set out, we set out what were the terms and parameters. So I think one of the things we learned, and it's applicable, I think, anywhere in any urban environment, set out the goals and objectives at the beginning. Almost ask for the impossible so that you can achieve the remarkable. Uh, going back a little bit, the Hawaii design ethos, that's something you brought to the design of Mazdar City. It's something that WATG has used in its projects. Could you describe the Hawaii design ethos? 
I think uh, what island communities do and what Hawaii has demonstrated to the world, that you have to live in balance with your environment. The land, the water, the carrying capacity of your, your land and your communities, those are fundamental principles that Hawaiian culture has for centuries engendered in the way the islands were curated and managed and how people lived in the islands. I think as we move into the, uh, the 22nd century and we deal with the issues of climate change, island communities are far better prepared culturally as well as socially to understand what's necessary to achieve a balance between nature and humankind. So that ethos is permeated through WATG because our founding was in Honolulu almost 75 years ago. And that creative dynamic of looking for outcomes that are not only in the benefit of the self-interest, but are that are in the benefit of the community, I believe, is a cultural characteristic that comes out of Honolulu and Hawaii for my firm. What are your big takeaways for achieving a sustainable future in a place like Hawaii? We have a job ahead. We have challenges. And I think... Um, Hawaii is probably better suited than some inland community in North America to deal with those issues. And the other piece is um, the effects of climate change will be, f be felt quite um, intensely on island communities. And therefore, being proactive is, I think, a very astute way, not only in the public sector, but also the private sector, and in each and every day in which we live our lives. I think there's one thing which um, is a challenge, and you see it in the public press, and that is how do you get governments to recognize the actions they need to take to advance not only um, the effects of climate change, but how do you build sustainable communities from an energy point of view, resource point of view, and a social point of view? And so looking at integrated environments, something that's very close to WATG's ethic, integrated environments, and by that I mean social, residential, learning, working environments, the true nexus of live, work, learn, play is something um, I think I learned at Mazda about how you build it physically, but what you put into the buildings is the social aspect and the public aspect is very important. So it's not a private uh, enterprise. It's not a public enterprise. It's a, a combination of the two creating healthy communities. That was Anthony Mallow, CEO of the Honolulu-based architectural firm, WATG, which led the development of a Mazdar City Plan community in Abu Dhabi with aims of becoming a global leader in sustainability and renewable energy. He was talking with Harrison Patino, our newest producer. Honolulu Civil Beat regularly brings us our reality check, and today, political and opinions editor Chad Blair has a story about the Honolulu mayor's race. Good morning, Chad. Good morning. Happy Statehood Day, Catherine. Happy Statehood Day. You know, I <laughs> have to say, I, I saw the uh, press release pop up in my uh, phone, uh, and it was sent out by uh, Colleen Honabusa, and I went, what's all this then? <laughs> 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 yeah, we have the story up on our site uh, today. We actually uh, broke it yesterday. There had been discussion uh, in certain circles that Colleen Hanabusa, the former uh, U.S. Congresswoman, former state Senate president, would actually run for mayor of Honolulu. It is an open seat in 2020. Mayor Kurt Caldwell is term limited. And while Hanabusa is not officially jumped in, she has taken a big first step, and that's 
filing what's known as an organizational report with the Campaign Spending Commission. And it, it states quite clearly that, you know, she wants to, to be mayor. In her statement, you mentioned uh, she didn't, you know, say I'm running for sure, but she did <laughs> signal pretty clearly what her, her platform will be, would be if she does run. Um, and, and that has a lot to do with trust in the city. She says the public has lost trust in the city, and she mentioned specifically uh, rail, the Honolulu Rail Project, and homelessness as top issues uh, that um, frustrate people like her who say they just can't sit on the sidelines and watch it go by. Yes, and, you know, we should mention that she was on the heart board, uh, so, uh, you know, she does have some perspective, but I just thought the, the timing of all this was interesting with the uh, subpoenas, I guess, that have gone out uh, from the federal government. That's right. To employees of heart, we don't know who those employees are or exactly what it is the federal government is looking into. But Hanabusa did specifically mention the heart subpoenas uh, and mentioned uh, what she described as mismanagement and corruption at the highest levels of government. A pretty strong thing to say. Uh, yeah, Caldwell, it was Caldwell that actually appointed her to be chair of the heart board. And you might remember that Mike Formby, who was uh, working for the city, working for Caldwell, running the transportation services, uh, was ex officio, meaning he sat on the heart board. Formby later was chief of staff for Hanabusa when she went back to Congress that second time around. Right, so there are those ties there. Uh, but we have obviously been talking about the mayor's race because there have been no uh, no shortage of interested candidates that are eyeing that seat. Yeah, there's a, a lot of names, and, and none have officially announced, but Kim really Pine, the council uh, member. She also has filed an organizational report. She's even gone a step further. She's actually held a fundraiser specifically for that office. Uh, she is term limited on the council next year, and so she can't run again for council. Uh, her colleague, Ron Menor, uh, the chair emeritus, his term is up next year, and his name has been mentioned as possibly running for mayor as well. Uh, so those are a couple more names that I think we would all recognize. And then, Catherine, there are some names uh, of people that I think probably caught a lot of people by surprise, but they've been bandied about. Mufi Hanneman, the former mayor, uh, now working in the tourism, the visitor industry. Uh, there has been talk that uh, he may run again for his old seat. Um, he was unavailable for comment yesterday, but boy, do I hear his name bandied about a lot. Yes, and he has been uh, actually on this show talking a lot about uh, some of those same issues that he dealt with uh, as mayor. That would include getting the rail project going. I mean, he was he was really the person who led the charge in so many ways. Caldwell was actually his managing director, if you'll remember. And then there's, speaking of Caldwell, Charles DeJoux, who ran against Caldwell a couple of years ago. Um, his name has been mentioned as well. Remember, the mayor's office is nonpartisan. You don't have to be a Democrat or a Republican, although I'm sure people will associate uh, party politics with certain candidates. But it is a, an open race. You don't have to be a member of a party. And remember this, uh, you also have to get 50% plus one of the vote in the primary, which, by the way, is less than a year away. I think it's August 3rd, August 4th next year. Uh, and if you don't get that 50% plus one, the top two candidates go head-to-head uh, -head in a runoff in the general election. That generally is what happens with uh, every mayor race. It's rare for someone to actually get a majority and just uh, move into, uh, really move into the office as a result of the primary election. Yeah, and I know that uh, City Council Chair Ikaika Anderson, uh, his name at one point had been bandied around uh, as a possible uh, candidate for mayor. Yeah, he's he's out. He has said publicly that he's not going to be running. His seat, too, uh, is also up. Interestingly, five of the nine uh, city council seats are uh, open next year. That's quite a big uh, seat change. Uh, Catherine, I will mention one other name, uh, Keith Amamiya. For those who follow Hawaii Athletics High School sports, they would recognize that name. He was the former head of that association. Currently, he's a senior vice president with Island Holdings, and he's expected, according to a number of sources, to be announcing his candidacy uh, next month, even though he's never held office before. Yeah, well, very interesting. Interesting cast of characters. We'll see who actually <laughs> yeah. jumps in. Looking forward to it. Yes, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks. That was political and opinion editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read his story, visit civilbeat.org.
support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kumu Kahua Theater. Ua Pau, It Is Finished, Over, Destroyed, is the final play in Alani Apio's Kamau Trilogy. Opens Thursday, August 22nd. Tickets at kumukahua.org. I'm Ira Plato. On the next Science Friday, a tower in Switzerland is struck by lightning more than a hundred times per year. Lightning strikes are still very mysterious events. What researchers are learning about where lightning comes from and why it chooses its targets. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. This afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Symphony Orchestra. Learn more about Saturdays at the Symphony events by calling 94MUSIC or online at hawaiisymphonyorchestra.org. today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about an important bill relating to statehood that was approved by the U.S. Congress back in March 18, 1959. The Hawaii Admission Act was signed into law by President Dwight Eisenhower, dissolving the territory of Hawaii and establishing the state of Hawaii as the 50th state. On that same day, the Territorial Senate voted to adopt Aloha State as Hawaii's official nickname. Uh, that was its last official act the passage of the Admission Act dissolved the territorial legislature and established Hawaii as the 50th state to be admitted to the Union. No winners today? That was our backyard quiz answer that we were looking for. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Today marks 60 years since Hawaii was admitted to the State of the Union. John Rosa is an associate professor of history at the University of Hawaii and shares some insight about the forces at play during that time, August of 1959. I'm a professional academic historian, which is what I like to say on occasion, also making fun of myself because um, in terms of written histories about Hawaii, very often it had been kind of a teleological or endpoint for uh, celebration, right? Hawaii's come a long way. It was a territory after World War II. Eventually becomes a state in 59. However, like any event, historical event, there's history, um, which I break down for people as the events that happened, number one. But also, for me, more importantly, you know, as a professional and as a person, how people look back to on historical events and interpret them and reinterpret them on the basis of their current situation, their current cultural values, and so on. So that's why statehood uh, continues to be important. So we mark the holiday on the third Friday of August. The actual day is not really the till the 21st. Right. The interesting issue is, for me at least, is this is 60 years since um, 1959. So it's it's only in certain years, like 25 years or 50 years or now 60 years that you do have more discussion. So there were quite a few discussions uh, locally as well as um, on the American continent in 2009 regarding how to uh, maybe not celebrate but commemorate the events of 1959. So, Give us some context then about the, the time and, and what we were going through. For 1959 itself, it just so happens that I've been working on a, a book for quite some time, taking a look at the year of 1959, kind of as a historical actor, uh, so to speak, in that a lot of people look back to 1959 in fond ways, uh, perhaps because of statehood and the iconic photos of let's say, somebody selling newspapers with the big headline statehood or a young girl, you know, also smiling with statehood. And there being big celebrations, not actually in August, but in March, when the Hawaii Admission Act wa was passed. Um, after March um, in 1959, in March 1959, uh, 
the news came to the then territory of Hawaii that uh, things passed in both the House and the Senate, and uh, uh, Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, was going to sign sign the uh, bill into law very shortly. Um, so once the news arrived, and I think one of the stories is that it was um, it was a phone call to Governor Quinn's household and. His wife answered the phone, and it was his daughter who relayed the information. There were, you know, um, as you can talk to anybody who's over, I don't know what she would say, 70 or 80, um, celebrations in the street, um, people downtown going to Kauaihau Church, bells ringing, fireworks. Um, My mother, who was about 15 years old at the time, you know, getting out of school, and uh, at Kauaihau Church, Abraham... Abraham Akaka, right, the older brother of Daniel Akaka, giving a very well-known sermon about statehood, which, you know, of course he had prepared and and later published about how statehood um, for Native Hawaiians and local residents brings great hopes, but also great fears. And it's it's uh, kind of in a, kind of an often quoted. You, you talked about a time of great hope, a right. time of great fear. I think just in the the times that we're we're living mm-hmm. in now, when what we're seeing with the movement on the mountain and right. uh, some of those feelings, I think are wrapped up maybe in some of this and and just Hawaii history in general sure. with the overthrow. Sure. I think taking a look at history is is um, a practice of understanding. So, for example, why would people in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s be pushing for statehood uh, to begin with? And um, a a lot of it has to do with the fact that being a territory from 1898 until 1959 was not all that great for, for people in Hawaii. Unlike other places like American Samoa, you did have people who as a result of the Organic Act of 1900 automatically became U.S. citizens. But even though you might be a citizen of voting age in the territory of Hawaii, you're not able to vote for president if you want to do that. You're not able to vote for your own governor. The governor is selected by the U.S. president upon recommendation of local elites. Usually it's a naval governor. Right, <laughs> right, or somebody related to the Big yeah. Five. Um, but also, and Hawaii has very little representation, right? You have only a delegate to Congress, a non-voting delegate to Congress, who might or might not always be effective. Um, Prince Kuhio, for example, the second Uh, delegate to Congress is very effective, but he does not necessarily have a vote on the the House of Representatives floor. So it's it's kind of a a way for people who grow up in the early to mid-20th century uh, to think about being accepted, right, especially after the events of World War II, going through martial law, so-called blood on the sands argument, um, Hawaii really taking a lot of sacrifices during World War II, and then finally being acknowledged for its efforts. So the perspective of the local residents is what I just discussed, but from the perspective of people on the continental U.S., and I think you're noticing I'm saying the continental U.S., you know, the mainland. Not the mainland. <laughs> the mainland, you know, why isn't Hawaii the mainland to me, you know, to quote Joe Ballas, you know, a very well-known uh, local poet. Um, for people on the continental U.S. in Washington, D.C., um, and even in the late 1800s, it's always been Hawaii's importance because of its geography, its strategic location, and assisted in the early to mid-1890s by the push by you know, sugar planters, largely of American descent, who are able to pull off a coup and then offer Hawaii for, for annexation. And it, it, it takes a long time, right? Um, it's from 1893 to 1898. But um, it's, it's, it takes a while for the United States to warm up to admitting Hawaii as a state. I think if you take a look at a serious political scientist, Roger Bell from Australia. A lot of it is party politics, the the balance between Democrats and Democrats and Republicans in the uh, House and the Senate. But there's a realization that in the post World War II Cold War era, strategic location not just for Pearl Harbor but for the emerging aeronautics age and age of uh, developing ICBMs, right, intercontinental ballistic missiles. That Hawaii is going to be very very important. 
Also ideologically, it's in the Cold War era that the U.S. has to position itself as being, you know, benevolent and a forerunner in democracy and acceptance during the Cold War era, and Hawaii is a perfect place. Um, it's a little bit later in 1960 that uh, John F. Kennedy, um, when he's running for president or shortly thereafter says, you know, Hawaii is what America wants to be, you know, a multiracial, multi-ethnic place. Part of it is also public relations. Um, there are civil rights struggles in the American South that the Soviet Union and other people are always pointing to as, you know, a blot on the history um, and current situation of the United States then. So, uh, there are a lot of different issues, and in 1959, over the course of the year, there are a few different major things that are happening. Of course, you have, you know, statehood and the push for statehood and the Admission Act and also, you know, the events of August. But you also have the opening of Ala Moana Shopping Center in um, August, which is much anticipated, which maybe at the time was not acknowledged, but it, for me, at least as a historian, it marks the move toward talking more about uh, general American popular culture, consumer culture, and even more than Ala Moana Shopping Center, you know, being the largest shopping center in the world at the time, mm -hmm. and still, I think, the largest outdoor shopping center in the world, you do finally have commercial jet aviation. So commercial jet aviation really transforms things. Uh, you do have, you don't have people coming in well, you still have people coming in on propeller planes, which can carry 20, 30, 50 people. But with jet aircraft, they're coming faster. It's more uh, fuel efficient, higher capacity, so much so that by the early 60s, um, major air carriers are complaining to the, er the young state of Hawaii that there are not enough hotels to accommodate all visitors. You do have people like the Kellys who are starting to build more and more outrigger hotels. But you also have people like Henry J. Kaiser, right, who, as the story goes, comes right after World War II when he's retired in his early 70s and develops this huge suburb called Hawaii Kai, right, by dredging Manulua Bay and Kuapapan, which uh, Kuapapan is actually the largest fish pond or set of fish ponds in the entire in, in all of Polynesia. So there's a lot of different kinds of activities going on in 1959 itself. Interesting threads there right. when you look back at the history. And, and here we are today, 10 million visitors, right? And we still have the right. issue where folks are saying not enough hotels. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> And also, you know, only about, uh, what, 1.4, 1.5 million people. And if you look at Hawaii, uh, tourism authority figures, depending on where you are, what island, what time of year, uh, the ratio between visitors to residents can be, you know, um, three to one, four to one, five to one. Not nearly as bad as, let's say, places in the Caribbean, uh, but certainly, you know, taxing on the infrastructure of different places right, uh, so in Hawaii. So you've got the natural resource, you've got the influence of the economy, the military, the political forces at work in the well, as we say now, the Indo-Pacific. And so what's forward? Wh what now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm probably the worst person to, to ask because I'm always <laughs> looking backward for history. But um, part of it also has to do with, I'm not an economist, but, uh, you know, the changing na nature of capitalism, right? Um, a lot of people have always understood capitalism as a way to talk about class relations and labor and maybe in the last few decades about consumer products. But with information technology being what it is and big companies like Google and Amazon, you do have the trading of information, which is also valuable, which is really changing what's valuable and not valuable for people uh, in different ways. The Internet itself, information itself, is also changing the kinds of discussions, the kinds of conversations that people are having. With TMT, for example, I think many years ago, if you talked about talk to people outside Hawaii, they would say, well, why wouldn't you want to explore science, right? But as we've seen over the last couple of months, you know, social media and other ways to get information out um, allows for more complex discussions about different value systems at play locally and also globally. 
that might or might not necessarily be incompatible. And I think, you know, I'm also not a political scientist. Uh, in terms of politics, it's hard to predict what might happen unless people are willing to talk to each other and also try different things that uh, they might not have uh, tried a decade or two ago. That was John Rosa, Associate Professor of History at the University of Hawaii. He'll be featured Saturday at a forum, The Promise of Statehood, at the Hawaii State Library in Honolulu from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. He'll be joined by Governor John Wahei, as well as the author of the book, Unsustainable Empire, Alternatives of Hawaii Statehood. Dean Saranilio is an associate professor at New York University. We'll hear more from him next week. In the forum, we'll also include Anne Misawa. She's the director of the uh, film, a documentary that will be screened called State of Aloha. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. That wraps it up for this Admissions Day holiday. Coming up next week, we go deeper inside that massive golf ball radar ship now anchored at Pearl Harbor. And if you want to hear today's show again or get a past show or links to more information, go to our conversation page on the HPR website, hawaiipublicradio.org. We would like to hear from you. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HIConversation. The program is produced by Lillian Song, Ryan Finnerty, and Harrison Patino. Mahalo to John DeMello for the Backyard Quiz theme. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.